A quick introduction for those of you who haven't listened to the podcast before. I'm Daniel, and each week I bring you a conversation with someone who I think is inspirational or brings something inspiring to the podcast. It's about things that change or could change our lives, and that's why I called it Life Changes You. Listen to the range of topics around psychology, mental health, and inspiration, and find out how life changes you. Hello and welcome to Life Changes You. I'm Daniel and every week I say I hope you've had a good week, but I hope you have had a good week. I've had a really good week and I'm really excited about this season, season four. It's uh, We're halfway through and lots of great feedback and I'm really enjoying the guests that have been on. And today is no exception from Liverpool in the UK. I've got Holly Mason, who is a clinical psychologist and we're going to talk about behaviour addictions. So, hello, Holly. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's great to have you on the podcast. And for people who follow on Instagram, they would have seen Holly and I do a similar talk quite a few months ago where we talked about this. And lots of people were interested. Lots of people were coming forward with addictions that they felt they had that they didn't even realise was an addiction. Yes. I always think this topic's so relative to so many people, like, without even realising. So sometimes when it's highlighted, you're like, oh, my God, it's like the penny drops, isn't it? It is. Like when we spoke, the, the amount of different people that made comments and afterwards, like, contacted me and said, oh, I never knew this was an addiction. Someone ate a lot of chocolate biscuits and they said, I never thought it was a behaviour of addiction. But then when I listened to what you guys were talking about, I was thinking, God, I eat a lot of chocolate biscuits. <laughs> exactly. It's like that thing that you you reach to to cope, that, that maladaptive thing that you draw on when you experience something because, you know, you want to change how you feel internally rather than looking at the, the thing that you, you need to look at. Wow, that's good. So do you want to tell me a little bit about yourself? Yes, I am 26 years old. I'm Actually, I'm 27 this year. I've been studying, well, I was studying psychology and counselling for six years. So I have a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology and counselling combined, and I have my honours in that as well. And I did my dissertation on exercise addiction. So I did a study that looked at participants who suffered with exercise dependency. It was so, it was that interesting that I think the majority of psychology talks that I've done or that I do with other people are surrounding this, this topic of behavioral addictions, because I just think it's so, it's huge. It affects everyone. It even affects me, you know, (laughs) we're all, um, you know, accountable for, for this one. Yeah. So with um, exercise being addiction, how, how is that an addiction? Is it that you go to the gym too much or work out too much? Yeah, so it can be as soon as a, a behavior becomes a compulsive thing that you're doing in your life that you're kind of relying on to either create a feeling internally or to dismiss a feeling internally, that then becomes a problem. So as soon as something becomes a problem, I'd say, you know, as soon as you're using that to cope, that's an addiction. It's an addictive behavior. So rather than ingesting something like a drug or a substance, if you're carrying out an act and then you're doing it numerous times and it's all you're thinking about as soon as something bad happens or something good happens, it's a problem. 
So with exercise, though, because you, I mean, I hear of people who go three, four, five times a week and it keeps them really fit. Is that an addiction or is it if they go longer each time or seven days a week or how do we classify what would be an addiction or if we're seeing someone and we're thinking, God, you're going to the gym a lot or are they just super healthy? Yeah, so there's like a fine line between something being super healthy and something being like unhealthy. But when I did my study, for instance, on exercise dependency, it was a common um, pattern. So we call it like an interpretive repertoire of people who had exercise dependency who were going to the gym multiple times a day. Uh And with behavioral addictions, the, the problem of tolerance and withdrawal are still very, very present within the addiction yeah running for instance which I suffer with sometimes when I'm stressed to get that feeling of endorphins within to run for say at the beginning of uh, you know the the time where you start running and you don't really need to do that much yeah the tolerance so like in the end you're running for hours to get that same kind of high wow yeah to feel Hey, because you're, you're stressed. Like when I was doing my exams, I was running every day. My knees were in agony. I was just ignoring my injuries because I needed it internally, which it's so bad. Wow. It's not good. So, so what did you do to change that then? Did you change it? Did you slow down a bit? Did you realize this is what's happening? You know what? I, I fell into a bit of a hole because. I felt a little bit like, I mean, I'm completely exposing myself here, but it's fine. I don't mind holding myself accountable. I felt like I was being, uh, what's the word? Like, I'd be hypocritical. I was doing a research project on exercise dependency and I was using exercise to cope with it. Yeah. So I think something switched in my head at a certain point. And it was reading through like research articles, you know, and hearing about how exercise dependency was affecting people that made me think, you know, I need to sort this out. I kind of, you know, a lot of internal work after that and was like, right, I need to change how I am viewing and approaching exercise. And then with that, then, you know, you can kind of help other people with that as well. Wow. Yeah. Well, thanks for being open about that because, you know, it's explained it really well now because now I understand what you mean. Like even though you were having pains in your legs and in your knees, you still needed to get that rush, I guess. You needed to be out there to release your stress and feel better. And I guess that will help a lot of people with the other sort of things we talk about because most people, when you think about or most addictions, we think about a sex addiction, smoking, drinking, drugs, I can't think of any others, but when we were doing the live, uh, people were saying, oh, I have a coffee addiction. I, someone had a Coke, Coca-Cola, not cocaine, Coke addiction. And I guess whenever you're trying to change something, change that behaviour, you've actually got those two little voices in your head. You've got the one that's going, wow, you're doing so well. You're quitting. It's amazing. You're going to feel fantastic. And then you've got the other one going, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have one more biscuit or one more cigarette or one more dose of drugs? You know, so you're conflicted in your head and, what are some ways that people can overcome that when that's going on in your head? So I think when, when that's going on in your head, it's about trying to reprogram and reset your thoughts. So you've got to be aware that you've got a conscious and a subconscious mind. And sometimes your subconscious mind, we kind of, we quieten it because we don't want to 
hear what it's got to say and nine times out of ten that is the thing that we should be listening to you know so consciously we'll like run on overdrive and we'll pretend that like we're all right yeah you know you can you can have that because you want it whereas your subconscious mind that's sat behind it is like that's not good for you yeah but you just don't want to believe it so it's about realigning your conscious and your subconscious mind and like reprogramming your thought rather than just giving into that one thought it's about thinking about what's behind the thought so thinking okay is that really going to be okay for me and what are the effects if I do that and trying to like work it out before you do it to then prevent feeling like you've let yourself down because I think that's that's the that's the main one isn't it and as soon as you start feeling like you've let yourself down I think you then give into it even more it's like with people who are dieting, for instance, and they have that one biscuit because they go, oh, I'll have one biscuit, I'll be fine. And then they end up going, oh, well, I've had that biscuit now, so I may as well just carry on for the day and I'll stop tomorrow. Yeah. Because they let themselves down, so I may as well carry on. Well, look, I mean, you saying that when I used to smoke years ago, you'd go for a week, two weeks without a cigarette, and then you'd think, oh, I really want one. I'll just have that one. And you know that if you have that one, you're going to buy a packet, you're going to smoke the rest, and then you're not going to stop. But you put it off and put it off, and then in your head you're going, oh, no, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. And that's what I was saying about the two little voices in your head because the other side is going, no, no, look, you've been a whole week or you've been two weeks without a cigarette. You're doing really well. And then in the end you give in, and then you find that you smoke, 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 smoke for weeks and weeks, and then you go, all right, I've got to start again. And it's really hard to do that first I guess, day or two days or three days to actually say to yourself, I don't smoke, I'm feeling better. And I did all these things like, you know, I'm feeling healthier, my voice sounds better, I'm breathing better, all these things. And I can go for a walk with the dog now and I don't feel puffed out. But you still have it in your head, I'd say, for a few months afterwards. We're a lot better these days with not so many people smoking but I'm, I'm thinking back when I was in my 20s in the 90s and everybody smoked. So everywhere you went, if you tried to quit, people were smoking around you. And I remember with my mum, she would smoke in the lounge room when I smoked. But when I stopped smoking, she would only smoke in, in the office. And then I'd feel guilty because she was going into the office to have a cigarette. But she'd say, no, 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 if you're quitting, I want you to be able to quit. Yes, exactly. So it's about putting yourself in the, in the right environment, isn't it? And yeah. being conscious. I always say to people, like, with anything, we're always looking for validation. So as soon as you get that one validation statement from someone who says, you know, oh, just do it this once, you'll be fine, and you use that then as an enabling tactic, you felt that that thing because you're like, oh, God, you know, I only needed that one validation statement, and there I was. Yeah. When if you think about like a night out, for instance, and you say, I'm, I'm going out, but I'm not going to have a drink tonight, and you say to your friends, I'm not drinking tonight, and they're like, oh, just have one. And then you end up staying out all night, and then you come home, and you feel rubbish about yourself, and you think, if I could go back to that one person who validated me and say, no, I would. But do you think it's also on the other side that they see it that, oh, no, Holly's being good. She's not having that drink. Oh, but come on, I want a drink. And if she's not drinking, I feel like I shouldn't drink, but I really want to have a drink. Because I sometimes feel it's a bit like coercive or otherwise, you know, why are you being so good? Why are you on a diet? Why are you losing weight? Because it's what they want to do, but they're not able to do it. So they project how they feel onto you to make you feel bad. So you give in. That's exactly it. 
It is. It's it's an enabling tactic. If you're sat there and you're eating a chocolate bar and you're with someone else and they're eating a piece of fruit, you're going to feel guilty. So you want that other person to be just as bad as you. Yeah. The exact same with alcohol and drugs, isn't it? Like you're doing something that you know isn't good for you and you're with someone who's doing the opposite. You're feeling rubbish about yourself. You're going to try and make that person or coerce that person into being just as bad as you because the blow is softened then, isn't it? You're like, oh, well, at least this person's doing it, so it mustn't be that bad, when in reality it's just as bad as you doing it on your own. Yeah. Look, I remember years and years ago when I used to be a bit of a partier on the party scene, I was one that didn't need to do drugs. My friends did, uh, not all of them, but some of them. And I remember going to a New Year's Eve party and more or less sitting on my own because all the others were running into their bedroom to do their drugs and then come out. And I'm like, if you want to do them, do them. I don't want to do them. Oh, no, but, you know, if you don't want to do them, you know, we feel a bit weird. Well, that's not my problem. I ended up going home at midnight because they didn't like me being there because I wasn't part of the crew. Yeah. I remember when I was younger, like I used to say, oh, I'll drive. Like, I'll, I'll drive tonight. And that used to like stop me from Gavin to really like say, oh, I'm not drinking tonight. And then to seem like I was being the one who was being a bit boring. Yeah. Because it is, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? And we do, we live in a, a society today where, which is really, really unfortunate, I think, where it's like you have to explain yourself if you're not taking part in something. It's the thing that like people do. It's it's especially hard at, at my age, you know, being, being in, in the late 20s, because that's the thing that a lot of people are going out and doing every weekend. So it seems to just be the norm. So when you're not doing that, it's like you have to like, explain why yeah and it shouldn't be like that should it because you should just be able to just go out have a good time and no one worry but I do think there's a lot of on the other people's side of they're feeling a little bit guilty because they know they can't do what you're doing and it's hard isn't it because you get questioned for doing something or making a change that's better for yourself yeah I seen a, a quote actually the other day and it was like People pulling me up on going to the gym every day saying that I've got a problem when in reality they're going out every weekend and drinking or they're, you know, every day they're eating junk food. Why are we living in a, a society where we're doing that? We're pulling people up for being healthy and then, you know, accepting that we drink and take drugs and eat bad food every weekend. It's mad. Yeah. Does that so make sense? Uh, what are some other addictions that people take on board, like not the main ones, but what sort of addictions are there that people do that we wouldn't think of them as addictions? I mean, I said to you before about the, the woman who was eating all the chocolate biscuits. What other things do people do that could be harmful to them, but they probably don't even realise they're doing it? Porn's a bad one. Yeah. Porn's a massive one. That's huge. And I don't think people really realise that that can be such a problem because it's like, it's a bit hush-hush, isn't it? Like, people don't really talk about that. Like, porn and sex, that's, like, something that you're taking part in to feel a particular way. And we think that that's normal to, you know, so say, for instance, I mean, it's more common in males than females. Thinking about it, like, when you're at work or thinking about it when you're doing things that, like, cooking your tea, that's not actually good yeah and people don't realize that so that's one of them gambling gambling is massive oh yeah 
I hadn't even thought of gambling, but yeah, lots of people do. And look, a lot of people just say, I'm just going to have a flutter or I'm just going to spend $10. And before they know it, I know when we had, I don't know what you call them there, over here, they're called pokey machines and you put your money in. And when they first came out, everybody was going because they weren't around. And then after a while, like I'll go with my mum because she's 82 and needs someone to take her. And I'll go through $100 just sitting there with her. And I go, mum, this is why I don't come here because I don't want to play it, but I don't want you to have to play on your own. And she's like, oh, it's only, and it is only once in a while, but, you know, the money goes through so quickly and you find that all the people sitting around on their chairs all know each other. Like, hi, how are you going? Oh, I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks. And it's like they've got this little family together, but what they're doing is they're spending all their money. Yeah, enabling each other, yeah. And another one with, with like spending is shopping. Some people can have a shopping addiction where they become addicted to, you know, going out and spending all of their money to create this thrill. And all of these processes and these behaviours, they do create a thrill and they do release dopamine in the brain. So that's the reason why you become addicted to it. But the the problem is that there's always a crash afterwards so you know if you're if you're going out and you're spending all your money it's great at the time and you feel excited and like wow but then as soon as you get home and you look at your bank account and you've got no money in your bank that's like it's a complete crash and then what are you using to cope with that you're you're going into debt because you're going out shopping to cope with that yeah it's like a never-ending cycle it's and the the problem with these behaviors is that abstinence is not always possible in terms of like trying to get better yeah. There's no way that you can live your life where you're completely cold turkey from shopping, for instance, because you've got to go to the shop and get your food shopping. Yeah. Because otherwise you're going to eat. You've you've got to go to the shop at some point to, you know, buy new socks, for instance. How are you gonna get to the shop and you know not fall under that that trap of of spending all your money again? So it is about like yeah, sometimes with these process addictions, it's it's about completely reprogramming your brain and, and how you think about it, which is like, it's, it's huge and it takes a long, long time. And look, I think with COVID, we found that a lot more people were buying online because they couldn't actually go to the shops. And a friend of mine said that she likes getting home and finding one, two or three parcels to unwrap. And sometimes because she's ordered a lot, look, she's not spending all her money, but she said because she's ordered it sometime in the past, when it comes, sometimes she doesn't even remember what she's bought. And she said, but it's, it's such a thrill to open it. And sometimes you see her on social media, what's in the box? And I think, I don't care what's in the box, but other people go, oh, what was in the box? And they watch it to see what was in the box. Yeah, you know, it's like getting a present, isn't it? But from yourself. <laughs> it's exciting at the time, isn't it? It's exciting opening the box and being like, oh, you know, what have I ordered? But then what goes up must come down. So you get to that peak and you feel excited and you have that rush, but then you you have to come down from that. Yeah. So if the thing that you're using to cope with that come down is to shop again, that's just a, a never-ending cycle. And like what I said earlier about the tolerance, you're then buying more and more and more and the problem gets worse and worse, which means that it's harder to rewind. And I think nowadays it's a lot harder for young people who at 18 are able to apply for credit cards, or I don't know if you have it there in the UK, but here we have 
buy now, pay later, where you buy something and you've got four payments to pay it back in. But if you don't pay it back in those four payments, the interest rate skyrockets. And some people have been buying something for $200 and then ending up paying $1,200 for it because they haven't been able to afford to buy it or they've bought more things. So then they don't have enough money to cover them all. Yeah, so bad. I really, really disagree with those buy now, pay later things because like I always have this mentality like if you can't afford to buy that thing multiple times you should not be buying it no way I don't know if you have it in England I guess you did I think actually you might call it layaway here it's called lay by and what you used to do is you'd pay a 50 cent fee and you could buy I don't know $500 worth of stuff $100 worth of stuff they keep it on hold for you and you go in weekly and pay it off. And then when you've paid it off, then you get whatever it is that you've purchased. So you could have, especially at Christmas time. So parents would go and say, buy all the toys for the kids, save for $500. They pay the 50 cent fee. And then weekly, they've got to go in and make payments on it for say six months to pay it all off. And then they go and pick up the parcel. Now that was a lot better idea because you couldn't have the product until you've paid for it. So in other words, you couldn't then just go, oh, oh, I haven't got the money this week, I won't pay it. And then the interest goes up, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think we're in a society now where everybody wants everything instantly and it's not teaching anyone anything about how to handle their money. Yeah, we're in a consumer society, aren't we? That's the thing that we do. We overconsume everything. That's the reason why people have process addictions and substance addictions because we have access to everything in mass and it's actually pretty sickening. And I think sometimes, so for instance, I I went to the Dominican Republic not long ago and we were staying in this lovely resort. So I'll just use this as an example. And everything was like provided to us in a mass like form. So like, you know, you go to the breakfast buffet, there's a lot of stuff to choose from and you've got access to drinks and food all day to the point where like you feel a little bit embarrassed. And like me and my dad, we were a little bit like, oh, you know, no, we didn't want another drink. And you know, it's too much. And then I remember we were driving to the airport. So we'd come out of the resort. So we're only, say, two minutes down the road. And then you're in the real country then. And there's children who are juggling on the in the road, you know, at the lights to try and get some money because they need to be fed. And I think this overconsumption that we've got, this consumer society that we're in, I believe it's shocking. And that's the problem, isn't it? You know, how are we living like that? And, it, and you know, how do we accept it? It's all marketing and advertising, isn't it? I mean, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, the, the television shows, you might have some toys shown as adverts, but nowadays it's everything showed to you. You know, fast food, you should have the new iPhone. Why haven't you got the new iPhone? The new iPhone's so much better. I mean, I've had my iPhone now for three years and I can upgrade, which I probably will, but I'm not one of those people who does it every year. And then I'll just use my old one I'm using now as my work phone. But people just go out and queue up and pay for these things that they don't need. And then they just throw the old one away. And it's like, well, these can still be used. Why are we just throwing everything out? I know. It's awful, isn't it? And there's like subliminal messages that people don't really realise as well. So like subliminal adverts, for instance, like they used to have it in the cinema, but I know they got banned in the end where they would show you clips of like drinks and it would 
activates something in your brain that makes you want that drink. So you then go out and you buy a, a cold Coca-Cola because you've seen the, the Coca-Cola on the, on the screen without even realising you've seen it. How does subliminal work? Is it that very short flashing images either behind what's playing or in another advert? So you don't even know you're seeing it, but it's flashing into your head and that's why you yeah. go and do it. Yeah, well, sometimes it's it's on the screen and it's just out of your peripheral conscious view. So there was a study that was done with a football match. Did you see that where the monkey ran across the pitch? No. So there was a football match and, and there was a, like a guy dressed in like a monkey costume, you know, like a mascot who ran across the pitch. And then they asked all of the people who were watching this match, you know, what did you see on this side of the pitch at this time? And nobody's seen this this monkey run across the pitch because it's all about concentration and what's in your peripheral view. So sometimes you'll you'll be absorbing something that you don't even realise. Right. Things that your eyes are picking up on that are, are, are talking to your subconscious mind. And wow. it's embedded in your brain without you realising. So for instance, you may sit there and think this evening, oh, I really, really fancy a KFC tonight. And you don't know why. So you just think, oh, it must be a craving. But it's something that you've seen in the day that you don't yeah. even realise or looked at. Well, I remember watching, what was his name? He's an English guy and he works with uh, psychology and hypnotherapy and Darren Brown. Oh, yeah. He was showing someone, he was saying that this person would want to get a red bike and you just wondered how they did it. But then when they showed what they did, like this person's walking along the street and they see a person wearing all red and a red car and then red written in a window. And, and so they knew that they were putting enough into their head subliminally that they would go red. And then they had bikes and unicycles and pictures of bikes. And so when they said, what do you want for Christmas? This guy said, a red bike. And he said to him, is that what you really want? And he said, yeah, I don't know why, but I want a red bike. And then they took it out and it was a red bike. And then they showed him how they did it. And it was amazing to see that just putting all these little things in your eyesight as you're walking along the road would change the way you think about what you want. Yeah. It was one of our um, first topics in uni, advertisement and persuasion. And I remember learning it. And I remember like after it, I remember feeling a little bit like I didn't know. And I hadn't learned it because I felt like I was so, I was on my guard then. And one of the main ones was like in a supermarket. So how a supermarket is set out to draw you into like goodies that look good, you know, sweets and chocolates at the, at the front of the shop. And then like music down the wine aisle. So they'd have like classical music on down the wine aisle or music that makes you feel good, that yeah. makes you want to buy fine wine clothes shops for instance in the changing rooms putting on like music to to match the clientele to make them feel good when they try on the clothes to go oh yeah I'm gonna buy this because this feels great and don't they change the mirrors as well in those changing rooms so that you look slimmer than what you are I'm sure they do you know I'm sure but I, I mean I wouldn't want to say but I'm sure they do because <laughs> And you can buy something in a shop and you can bring it home. You can go, why have I bought that? <laughs> it's probably all right. I, I also wanted to go back to you. You mentioned about porn addiction. And I think in the studies they're finding now is that young men have a different understanding of what is normal sex because okay. they see all this stuff in pornography 
And that's then what they think their partner should be doing or they should be doing with their partner. It's unrealistic. And this is a new concern because we're getting so many young men from the age of 15 to 25 who are presuming that that's what sex is. And they're oh, not yeah. understanding that it's a whole different dynamic to what you're seeing in a porn film. Yeah, exactly. So the thing in real life, it's like incongruence, isn't it? Where yeah. you you build it up to be this thing that you've seen online. It's like glamorized and seems like this huge thing. I don't even know what, what, to, what to call it. And then in real life, it's like, oh, is that it? When the thing that you're striving for yeah. is not sustainable because it's not real. So it's like making people feel like their relationship maybe isn't that great because they're like, you know, it's not unlike it seems on online when no. in reality. That, no that's perfect what you just said because I was coming from where guys think that this is how sex should be. But as you just said, guys are going to feel inadequate because they watch something and then they go and do it and they go, oh, my God, is that it? It's over. And they'll then compare themselves to these guys who are probably, you know, doing whatever they're doing over a certain amount of time. It's not one take. It's there's, there's a few takes to get to whatever you get to. But these young guys are going, well, why can't I do that? And maybe even the girls are saying to their partners, well, why can't you do that? Yeah. And it's all about expectation, that isn't it? So, like, I always say to people, expectation is the problem. Our expectations can be a massive problem and they're the things that let us down. Other people don't let us down, our expectations do. So if you build this thing, this expectation of something being so great and like something that's just unnatural, you're then always going to be let down. So, you know, I have it with people, for instance, where I'll think, oh my God, you know, that person seems really, really great. I'm going to have a great friendship with that person and then that person then shows me that they're not the person I thought they were that I expected them to be and then like oh but it's not that person's fault it, it's mine yeah. so it's the same with porn isn't it you know how oh, I expect to have sex with that person and it's going to be just as good as that what I've seen online and then in reality you're thinking oh it's not that great like maybe that's me or maybe that's her yeah. when in, in reality it's it's not it's the expectation that's the problem and look, that's really good. I spoke to a um, happiness coach from the States called Rob Mack, and he tells a story in his book about an 11-year-old who wants to ride on a roller coaster, but he can't ride on it until he's 14 because he's too short. And so every year he goes and watches the roller coaster and he's so excited about it going. Anyway, to cut it short, in the end, he's 14. He's allowed to ride on the roller coaster. He stands in line. He's so excited. He can't wait to get on it. And then when he finally gets on the roller coaster and goes around, he comes off and his mum says, so how was it? And he goes, yeah, it was good but I think the anticipation was better. And it's the same in life, isn't it? Like you're saying, expectations. We expect something, but the anticipation, the build-up to it is usually better than what the reality is. I always say that about Christmas, you know, and um, I might seem like I'm being a bit bleak, but, like, the build-up to Christmas is better than Christmas Day. Yeah. I know Christmas is great to have, have a nice meal and be with family, but 
I always think that builds up. Like sometimes you can get to Christmas Day and it can feel a little bit like, oh, I'm, you know, oh, it's only two o'clock in the afternoon. Or I'm a little bit bored. No shops are open. Like other people are with their family. Like <laughs> it can feel a little bit mundane. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a thing called destination disease as well, where you think like, oh, when I get to that place, I'll be happy or I'll feel amazing. So like when I pass my degree, I'll feel great. And you get to that place and you expect it to be like fireworks and it's not no look I'm exactly like you for Christmas I think the build-up to Christmas we're so busy buying presents writing Christmas cards having Christmas parties all these things and you're like Christmas day tomorrow it's, it's exciting and then you wake up Christmas morning I mean for me I cook half the Christmas meal so ham and potatoes and everything and then you go to your mum's and you open your presents and then you're sort of like oh that's it that's it for the yeah. year yeah it's like whoa. my birthday is christmas eve as well so like it's exciting the build up's really exciting but then christmas day is just like what now <laughs> what else can we eat that's why you end up over consuming foods because you've got nothing else to do <laughs> well i don't know if you watch tv but i used to really like the christmas specials on tv in the uk yeah yeah, yeah. there are there are some good specials yeah yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm an EastEnders fan. So Christmas time here in Australia on Boxing Day morning, I can watch the Christmas Day one from the day before. And so oh. I'm excited about getting up Boxing Day to watch the Christmas special. Yeah. I've never been someone who watches the soaps, you know, never, right. ever. Mum does. And I always, I always laugh at her. She could sit there for hours and just watch the soaps. I just can't do it. I'm, I struggle at sitting still. Right. Can't do it. No. Well, see, look, you're a clinical psychologist, so you're probably always thinking and analysing and working things out. Yeah, it can be tiresome, you know. <laughs> yeah. Look, when I first uh, qualified in counselling, people used to say to me, are you analysing me? And I'd go, no, but I was. And then after a while, you just went, I can't do this anymore because my brain is just, I'm not having proper conversations because all I'm doing is thinking about what they're saying and they don't even want any help from me. Yeah, exactly. People say that to me as well. And I'm like, no, but then, you know, it's so hard not to, especially if somebody is showing you signs of, of certain behaviours or patterns that you're like, oh, I've had people who've come to me and asked me, you know, oh, what do you think about this? And I've said something to them and they've gone, yeah, I thought that about me as well. You don't want to seem like you're being rude, do you? Like you don't want to. So I would never say to somebody, for instance, I would never say to somebody, oh, I think you're on the spectrum because I just would never, but there's been so many times where people have said to me, like, what do you think? And I've been honest and they've gone, yeah, and I, I've always thought that. So, yeah, but it's hard not to, isn't it? Yeah. So hard not to. Yeah, look, I mean, I have conversations with people and, you know, I think, oh, yeah, that's happening. And then, you know, usually they'll come to me a couple of months later and say, oh, look, I've been worried about this and I heard you talk about it in a live or on a podcast. Do you think that's me? And I'll go, what do you think? And they'll go, oh, I think it is. And I'll go, okay. That's good because I don't want to analyse anyone and say, oh, yeah, you've got this issue. But one, one that comes up a lot with friends is catastrophic thinking. Lots oh, okay. of people go to that degree thinking that's going to be the worst situation and nine times out of ten it's not going to be. I think a lot of people do that, catastrophising. It's like a um, coping mechanism, I think. And you know what? I believe catastrophising is one of the main symptoms of being 
in a traumatic situation previously or being here previously and not realizing to it being a bit of a shock yeah. and, and catastrophize after that because they think, well, I need to catastrophize just in case. Yes. You know, I've been blindsided there, so I can't let that happen again. And they take on that like coping mechanism for life, which can be awful, so hard to live with. Yeah, look, I mean, a couple of friends who lost their parents when they were really young, they have catastrophic thinking. And when you put it the way you do, then it's like, well, yeah, that was a huge trauma. And so I guess they're preparing themselves in case something else happens. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's a coping mechanism, yeah. All right, Holly, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast. I'm sure people will get stuff out of that. And also people will be able to see you if they want to on Instagram lives, uh, on my Instagram life, which is life, is it? Yeah, life underscore changes you underscore podcast. I nearly forgot what it was. And can you tell us what your handle is if people want to connect with you? Yes, my handle is perception underscore is underscore your underscore power. Okay, yeah. so I will put that in the show notes uh, for anyone who wants to follow Holly. Is there any other ways they can contact you or is that the best way? That's the best way, yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the main account right now, yeah. Yeah, and look, on Instagram, Holly's always putting up really good pieces of information that will inspire you and make you think about things in a different way, which is great. And that's how we connected because I started really liking what Holly was putting up and then she started liking what I was putting up. And then I said, do you want to come on a live with me? And it's just ballooned from there. So, you know, get in touch with Holly and tell her what you think of her updates. And uh, she's always got loads of great information there. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Holly. It was great having you on the podcast. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was another episode of Life Changes You. If you liked it, please share it with your friends and share it on social media and subscribe. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram and watch live conversations on Wednesdays and get daily updates. You can also follow the YouTube channel and watch live conversations and listen to the podcast from there. Keep sending in your emails and messages as I love reading them and interacting with you, and I'll always respond to you. So until next week, take care of yourselves and each other.